welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast, getting inside the sports industry and recording it on audio. Hi everyone and welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly. I am the editor-at-large at Sports Pro. Delighted to be in a room with a person and that person is Sports Pro senior writer Sam Carp. Hi Sam. Hello, thank you for having me on. Thank you for stepping in, Sam. It's it's lovely to be here. We're at the um, the new Sports Pro Towers um, in uh, in Victoria. It's all very it's all very glossy and, and coffee shoppy. Uh, you know, the lot, a few bit of taps. Oh, it's it's extraordinary. It's a real it's a real change of change of scenery. Cross between a uh, a hostel and a university library, I'd say. Matching our output to a T. <laughs> um, but yeah, glad glad to have you on, Sam. Uh, lots to get through this week. We're going to be hearing a little bit later on from Callum Skinner about the global athlete movement that was announced uh, last week. Sam, when with you on, we have the benefit of talking to someone who actually writes news stories uh, every morning. Every morning for the Sports Pro website. Um, what's what's caught your eye in the last couple of days? What's uh, what's a good place for us to start this week? I guess a good place to start. Uh, the soccer industry, we've had two kind of major movers. Last Friday, first of all, you had Don Garber signing a five-year extension with Major League Soccer. Um, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's one of the sort of great success stories. I mean, you look back to when MLS was launched, it was kind of looked at as an object of ridicule, something that people were looking down upon, especially especially from across the pond in Europe. It's, mm. um, it's kind of memories of the North American Soccer League. And yeah, exactly. And I mean, it, for a long time, those doubts were fairly justified. They were struggling. They were um, playing in front of empty NFL stadiums. But then when Garber came in, he kind of introduced this idea of playing in front of football-specific stadiums, um, introduced expansion fan- franchises, the designated player rule. So they kind of they moved away from this concept of having this salary cap and were able to attract players like David Beckham, who grew the profile of the league. Um, but now it's kind of... it's it's developed even further. I mean, he spoke at his most recent address of the league, stating that he wants it to become a selling league. I think that manifested itself recently in um, Almiron signing for Newcastle for £20 million, I think it was rumoured. But then Atlanta United, one of those expansion franchises which has come in, they play in one of the sort of more modern stadiums in the US. It's kind of already known around the world as one of the more high-tech sports Mm. venues. Um, and they've instantly replaced one of their best players with the South American Player of the Year in Gonzalo Martinez. So it's kind of it's it's something it's undergone what he what Garber actually told me a while ago in Miami was slow and steady growth, and you can yeah. kind of tell that it's becoming one of those one of those leagues which is really keeping up with the best in the world now. Yeah, Nani also on his way to MLS. Is he? He signed for Orlando City. There you go. Mm. Mm. Previously the home of Kako, of course. You, as you mentioned there, you spoke to Don Garber quite recently. That's a a profile that's going to be in the next issue of, of Sports Pro magazine. In fact, in the current issue, it's coming back from the printers any minute now. Mm-hmm. What What are some of the challenges that he talked about for the league now from this position? They've established themselves probably globally as a you know a pretty decent kind of second rank proposition. Mm-hmm. Um, where Where do they go from here? What's his challenge for his next contract, which runs until twenty twenty three? Yeah, it's yeah, it's at least twenty twenty three. Yeah, and I mean. He obviously spoke. There's still um, there's still a few fran- uh, expansion franchises to come in. Obviously, you've got into Miami with David Beckham, FC Cincinnati joined this year, and then there's Austin to come in 2021, I believe, uh, and Nashville also. Um, so I guess uh, looking ahead, those were kind of the the main things which he spoke about. But also, he still kind of talks. He talks about wanting to 
really earn that respect outside of the US. Um, he spoke at Soccer X essentially about how despite the fact that it's developed record attendances, it's got all these major broadcast deals, it's still, it still is kind of looked down upon um, on this side of the world or outside of the CONCACAF region. And the point which he pinpointed especially was obviously the 2026 World Cup. He said that that will kind of serve as a tipping point or mm. the time when basically the rest of the world sees the opportunity that exists in the US, um, which is basically why we already see so many major European clubs tapping into that market for their pre-season tours and whatever else. Mm. You mentioned that there were a couple of movers in the football world. Uh, one person who's not going to be sticking around at the top of his his league organisation is Sean Harvey, uh, chief executive of the English Football League. What can you tell us about that decision? Uh, well, first of all, I really enjoyed uh, Sean Harvey's parting blow in, his, uh, in the official statement. He said something along the lines of, I've always, uh, I've always believed that the value of the whole is much more important than any individual which I basically saw as a massive dig at Leeds United. <laughs> um, but generally, yeah, I mean, it, com- it kind of comes in the back of that controversial broadcast deal which he pushed through at the end of last year, which was opposed by, I think, as many as 15 championship clubs, who mm. were obviously after a kind of more lucrative deal and they sort of thought it un- unvalued the current market. Um, and the way the statement was phrased, it's obviously been an amicable decision between the EFL stakeholders and Harvey himself. But after kind of the, the unrest of the past year that that particular deal has caused, it kind of seems like a move which suits all parties. Yeah, yeah. They're in an unusual position in the EFL because they have this enormous audience, you know, 72 professional clubs. Some of them, like Leeds United, are, are kind of of a scale of a, a top tier team. Um, and the championship is kind of full of very ambitious outfits who you know see themselves as being Premier League teams one day the next Brighton and Hove Albion or dare I say at Crystal Palace Sam uh, well, yeah. <laughs> not, that, not that you particularly want me to compare those two um, but the the issue that they have is of course they don't really have premium rights because you're not watching the best players in the world with, with all due respect and the further down the league you go you've kind of got the issue of you know you're going to have dedicated audiences but you're not going to be able to drum up a, a wider audience that's going to return week after week. And I mean, this was the, the kind of story of ITV Digital 15, 20 years ago now. So they pushed through with iFollow, which is their OTT app, you know, delivering games to specific pockets of fans. Mm-hmm. And now, they, as you say, they're, they're kind of coming up against this roadblock of, uh, of creating a, a TV setup that, that delivers value to the most ambitious clubs at the very top end and, and also security to, to those towards the bottom. I mean, where do you see all of this going? It's a big question. I mean, I think, I think the iFollow service is a good place to start. It's, it's a decent enough legacy to leave. It's a, it's a platform which I think a lot of fans are already benefiting from. We saw earlier this year there were reports about championship attendances dipping and obviously people are going to try and relate the two. Um, but I mean, as far as that platform goes, it's another way to expose the league to more fans, both on a domestic, both both domestically and um, and globally. But I think coming in now, there is the per- the person who takes over from Harvey. Um, he leaves as, fa- as a fairly unpopular figure, I think, uh, with a lot of fans, especially of those clubs that you mentioned. Um, for the person coming in, uh, the the hands are kind of tied by that deal because it is it is there for such a long time. Mm. 
but at the same, but at the same time, that that deal is worth significantly more than the previous one. So they do come in with a sort of a, a fairly decent financial footing to work. The the other dynamic that's going on, of course, is you know in the background of that deal, there's this discussion about a Premier League two, a, a second tier uh, breakaway, mm-hmm. and. The force that's acting on the rest of that league and the rest of the Premier League is from the very top as well, with the top six clubs, you know, trying to use the the stick of a potential European breakaway, maybe, or something along those lines, or or trying to restructure their own share of the of, of TV income and so on. What that's going to do is is stretch the middle, and then you can imagine, you know, some of the clubs in the middle and bottom end of the Premier League have a reason to go and talk to. The teams at the top of the championship. Mm-hmm. Sure, I mean, I've always looked at that as a, even just a supporter of a smaller club. I've always looked at that breakaway talk and thought, let them go, because obviously the com- competition that it would introduce, that it would create, um, you'd have a different team kind of winning the Premier League every single year if those top clubs went off and competed in this mm-hmm. European breakaway. Um, but obviously, as you say, if those top six clubs do start getting a larger share, it's just going to create a well, which they are obviously from the start of next year, it's just going to create that sort of imbalance in the league. And there will be more reason to go and talk to those championship clubs because at the same time, as, as big a fan bases as your United, your Liverpools, your Cities, your Arsenal's have, so do Leeds United, mm. so do Nottingham Forest. These are teams that have competed in Europe throughout the years and if they were to suddenly become part of the Premier League, the draw would still be there. Okay, interesting to see how all of that develops. Staying in English football, this was a story that Everton in the Premier League are the latest team to kind of expand their partnership with um, uh, Fanatics, who've introduced this kind of fast fashion element to um, to, to sports merchandising. Uh, this is coming at the same time, and this almost, this almost feels like it might be part of the trend for 2019, but you're seeing something being introduced into sport as it's coming under pressure elsewhere and in, in the UK um, we're seeing campaigners now looking to create taxes and recycling incentives for clothing to alleviate the kind of environmental drag of fast fashion. What's your take on on how this uh, how this is all developing Sam? I mean that that deal, uh, the Fanatics and Everton deal, it is interesting. Sort of Fanatics gradually moving more and more into this market because obviously it's something. I think they call it vertical commerce, commerce mm-hmm. so e-commerce, which is something that they've obviously made a big success of in the US. Um, and the idea being just the the record that it's you know you can turn products around much much quicker, so you can have commemorative products that come out on the day of something happening, etc. etc. Yeah. So I mean, for example, with the if you looked at the Super Bowl, um, I mean obviously. Tom Brady jerseys and memorabilia are going to be produced rapidly anyway. But say if if um, if the Rams had won and there was suddenly this mass demand for Jared Goff shirts and Jared Goff hats or bobbleheads or whatever else. Yeah. <laughs> um, Fanatics is e-commerce. One of the ideas is that they're able to quickly respond to that demand. So yeah. That so that reproduce moments from games. Yeah. So consumers are never kind of like kind of trying to buy something and have that disappointment of not being able to. Mm. So I think Fanatics sort of first dipped their toe into this market last year with Aston Villa when they signed that three-way partnership with Luke 19-something, mm. the year that the, that the founder was born. Um, so the idea is basically that Fanatics handle handle everything across the entire value chain, so from, so from manufacture to retail to distribution. Uh, and, the, and the thing is, I mean, in this day and age, people people don't want to wait for things. Mm-hmm. Um, 
looking at it, football football fans are the same. Football fans want want the new shirt as soon as it's released. They want the light. They, they want the latest item of their club merchandise. So I mean, this deal Everton with Fanatics is something which is going to be able to meet that demand. Fans are never going to be logging onto their online club shop and being disappointed. And it it is something which fits with those consumer trends. I think mm. there'll be a growing obligation though on on these organisations to deliver these items more sustainably. Sure. Something that caught the eye last week, is it end of last week or start of this week, um, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver demonstrating a new smart jersey. The jersey of the future. The jersey of the future. Always sceptical when someone refers to an object of the future. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to agree with Adam Silver on this one. Yeah. So what what's what what is the what is the jersey of the future? Uh, well, he was ba- he was he was basically revealing all of this new tech that people can expect to see in the NBA over the next few years, which, as we kind of know, is premier trailblazer for US US leagues over the past few years with its steps into virtual reality, uh, esports, and all of that kind of stuff. And he was kind of on stage and doing this live demonstra- demonstration when I've got the jersey of the future and um, kind of brought it to life on this screen. So what it's essentially going to do is fans might have a Golden State Warriors shirt with Steph Curry on the back. Um, say Steph Curry leaves uh, the Golden State Warriors. Unthinkable. Unthinkable, but it could happen, just as LeBron left Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Um, twice. Twice, yeah. And all of a sudden, we've all had that problem before. We've got the name of a player on the back of our shirt who no longer plays for our club. That shirt suddenly becomes. Did you, <laughs> did you hang on to the Wilfred Zaha one through his uh, time at Man United? I didn't. I didn't actually have a Wilfred oh, Zaha shirt. My first, my first shirt was an Andy Johnson shirt. But he also returned about 10 years later, and I still had that, although it was about five sizes too small at that point, but <laughs> we won't get into that. So what it, what it essentially does, this NBA jersey of the future, it sort of eliminates that need for fans to keep going back and buying a new, a new one if a player changes club, mm-hmm. changes franchise. Um, I have no idea how it works, but I'm sure it does. <laughs> and I guess that is one way in which you're going to, that is one way in which tech can be used to kind of make these things more sustainable. Healthy attitude towards tech and investment. <laughs> I mean, that, that launch came with the NBA tying up a couple of other initiatives, one in the apparel space mm-hmm. with Puma, who are going to be um, a new footwear partner, I understand. Yeah, new footwear partner. I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting deal because obviously Nike is, Nike is the league's apparel mm. supplier. I assume that I'm not sure whether people would be able to use players in uniform in their marks campaigns. I'm not sure they'd want to because they'd mm-hmm. essentially just be advertising night. Um, but it's kind of it's another step for humor in that return to basketball, which they've which they've announced, and um, they're obviously trying to ramp up. They did a deal with the WNBA at the end of last year. Um, now having this NBA deal, you've obviously got access to the sports top top players. Yeah. And I mean, with someone like Jay Z as their creative director. Um, He's often pictured at NBA games at the time. You have, a, you have an idea that he's probably got a rapport with some of them. Mm. I'm sure they'll be able to come up with some cool collaborations there. Yeah, and also through, I mean, something that we've seen through Rock Nation, which is his agency that he's involved with. Um, they have a sports arm that represents a number of US players and also uh, footballers like Romelu Lukaku and uh, and Jerome Boateng. They've been keen to push this you know, collaborative angle as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, as you say, yeah, Puma aren't going to be spending lots of 
time focusing on players in jerseys. It's going to be, you'd think, streetwear and, yep. and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The Puma deal comes at an interesting time as well because one of the markets that Puma has historically been interested in is Africa. And the NBA is now involved in a new venture uh, on the continent. Basketball Africa League. Basketball Africa League. BAL, it's born of a collaboration between the NBA, between FIBA, the world governing body, and Barack Obama. Yeah, apparently so. <laughs> right, that's, that's what he's going to be up to. Um, FIBA is involved in its own kind of its own attempts to marshal the world game in, in a in a given direction, and it seems that the NBA is is increasingly interested in getting involved with those development efforts as a means of of establishing its own footprint in, in a lot of these places. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, what the what the uh, buy-in of the NBA does, it kind of immediately raises the profile and scale of that new venture. I think because obviously everyone knows FIBA's there, but. Everyone, I think, on a global basis, people associate basketball more with the NBA than mm. necessarily do FIBA. So that's one one advantage that that league has behind it immediately. And I mean, of the NBA itself um, has has been identifying Africa as an increasingly important market. They've been playing games there. Joel Embiid, um, he plays for the 76ers, is obviously now one of the most marketable players in the NBA. He's mm. from Cameroon. So yeah, I mean, it just kind of. It adds to their efforts there. Um, Africa's already got its, each, I think some countries have their own domestic leagues already, but it's never had this sort of intercontinental competition. I guess it's just that next step in taking the sport to the next level in that country. Yeah, yeah, and something that the NBA has talked about as being a priority, obviously what, what the NBA has that other US major leagues don't have is a, a huge international participation base for, for basketball that it can tap into. You know, when they were over in London earlier this year, they talked about the value of establishing, you know, scouting systems, MBA schools, and then generally getting involved on the talent side of things as being a way of spreading goodwill and also bringing players into the league. So you'd imagine that this would also be uh, a means of, of establishing a little bit more, a little bit more of a... A pathway. A pathway there in Africa, yeah. Um, but it's very interesting for FIBA as well, and it gives them, it builds on some of the some of the things that they've talked about kind of in, in quite woolly terms about working more closely with the NBA and it will be something to watch I'm sure. Right, that will do it I think for the first part of the Sports Pro podcast. Uh, join us again in just a moment. Welcome back to the Sports Pro podcast. Bit of housekeeping to start part two. Reminder of Sports Pro OTT Asia in Singapore on the 27th and 28th of March. Time really running out if you want to get involved with that one. Um, head to ottasia.sportspromedia.com to find out how you can secure a pass. 100 days to go today, Sam, until the Cricket World Cup. Did you know that? I did not, but now I do. Now you do. Um, before that, uh, Steve Elworthy, who is the managing director of Cricket World Cup England 2019, uh, he is going to be appearing at Sports Pro Live in he London. Is. He is. Uh, 30th of April and 1st of May. He is going to be joined by people from all, all over the place. World Rugby, Twitter, Formula One, uh, UEFA, European Tour, Red Bull... Paris Saint-Germain, Endeavour Streaming. They're all going to be at the O2 in London. They are. Exciting. 
This is. Um, also there, Intel Sports, and you can tell us a little bit more about what it is that Intel Sports have been up to in Premier League football in the last few weeks. Yeah, so Intel basically have, um, they've, they've done a partnership with Manchester City, Liverpool and your very own Arsenal. Uh, basically to roll out their TreeView technology at the Etihad, Anfield and the Emirates and it's an extremely intricate operation. There's going to be 38 5K cameras at each of those venues. Uh, those cameras basically capture 200 terabytes of data which uh, they capture height, width, depth, every single measurement and they mm -hmm. can create these three different types of content. Um, so this, the first bit of content that it creates is this 360-degree replay, so fans can essentially freeze a moment in a game and view it from every conceivable angle. So, say for example, Lauren Koscielny goes up for a slips. bicycle kick, and, <laughs> or slips, <laughs> goes up for a bicycle kick. Shodra Mustafi slip. <laughs> More likely. Definitely. Freeze likely. that moment and watch Mustafi slip from every angle they want. The, the second piece of content it creates is a laser wall, which is essentially, it's, that's only available after a game, it's sort of an overlay graphic. And then finally, which I think is the most interesting one, is the Blee, uh, not the Blee, the B a player feature, which essentially allows fans to step into the boots of Kevin De Bruyne, Mo Salah, and... Shodra Mustafi. Shodra Mustafi, exactly, and view the pitch as they see it. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you've always got on Twitter fans are following a game and they're questioning how on earth Ozil has managed to play a defence splitting pass. They'll now be able to kind of see exactly what he saw at that moment when he played that pass and try and work out what went through his mind and how. Back he... of Unai Emery's head at the moment. Exactly. Isn't it? Oh yeah, that's it. Well, not even that. It's just his TV screen. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's a it's an interesting move. It's it's something which kind of feeds into this idea that football clubs are increasingly starting to think of themselves as entertainment industries. Mm. It, was, it was only the beginning of this year that Peter Moore, the Liverpool chief executive, was kind of calling on, was calling on football teams to adopt and embrace these new immersive technologies, or I think he basically said that we're going we're gonna to lose all these millennial fans to Fortnite, that's it. So it timed quite neatly with that for Liverpool, I suppose. Um, but what it does, it's for all those people following on social all the time. It's a way of it's a way of contextualising the action. It's mm. a way of applying engagement. And I think for Intel, uh, partnering with clubs like Liverpool, City, Arsenal, who have this kind of global reach, it's a way of not only connecting with domestic fan bases, but it's a way of bringing supporters who may never have a chance to to go to these stadiums to kind of experience a Premier League atmosphere. Mm. And it's something we've seen a little bit of with Real Madrid and Barcelona in the past with Intel, but we're going to find out more about this project um, at the O2 in, in a couple of months' time. Another piece of news that came up, or a couple of pieces of news that came up in the past week uh, in the world of heavyweight boxing, uh, Anthony Joshua confirming his US debut for the 1st of June on DAZN mm -hmm. uh, at Madison Square Garden in New York against Jarrell Big Baby Miller. Uh, in a fight that nobody particularly wanted, uh, <laughs> and, but, but which has a, a kind of strategic, you know, achieves a, a strategic goal for, for match room. That came in anticipation of a rematch between Tyson Fury and uh, WBC heavyweight champion Deontay Wilder. But something happened 
just this week, Sam, that's that's really thrown a spanner in the works. Something did happen. Um, so Tyson Fury has signed an £80 million, reported £80 million, um, TV deal with ESPN in the US, which is essentially a co-promotional deal with um, Top Prank and obviously his existing promoter, Frank Warren. The interesting thing about that deal is that it, is that it calls for two fight, a minimum of two fights in the US per year, which, given that heavyweights rarely fight more than twice a year, kind of jeopardises the hope that Fury and Joshua could meet in this uh, winner-takes-all mm. British heavyweight boxing showdown in London, or Wembley, or, or, or at... Uh, or the what's the one in Wales called the Prince Millennium the Millennium oh Principality excuse me yeah so yeah it's a, it's it's thrown a big spanner in the works really I mean at a time where we've we've now got three best heavyweights of their generation all active mm. but they've all got three different US broadcast partners uh, the interesting I think about it is that obviously the Wilder and Fury fight announced last year was kind of surprising mm. and what it's sort of done is forced Joshua's hand to an extent because. They'd obviously had this April date at Wembley booked in, uh, probably with the idea that it would be Wilder fighting there. Whereas that Wilder Fury fight was so good that Joshua's now got to go out to the US and grow his own brand out there mm. because Fury's the guy that they will recognise now. If you, I think if you speak to a lot of a lot of casual sports fans outside the avid boxing community, people don't necessarily know Joshua that mm. as that well. And what Fury did with that fight last year by going to the US and sort of creating this shareable meme-like clip of him emerging from the canvas like The Undertaker. Um, it, basically, it endeared into a global audience and he's now signed this deal with ESPN. ESPN is obviously sort of like a stable of a staple of US sports broadcasting. It's in 90 million homes out there and its ESPN Plus platform has already got itself 2 million subscribers so he's, mm -hmm. got, he's sort of got that reach already. Joshua's with the zone, which is obviously new to the US market, not as many subscribers, I imagine. Um, so that's it's an interesting way of looking at it in their kind of their sort of battle for global popularity. Yeah, three different networks. Showtime being the established boxing player um, to which Deontay Wilder is tied, but three different fighters. As you say, everybody basically just wants the three of them to fight each other for the next two years. Mm -hmm. But three different networks all tying their move into the world of digital content mm -hmm. to the reputations of these three fighters eventually they're going to have to work it out to get them all together because that's just how that particular sport works uh, it's nothing new that you know two fighters are on different platforms and we, we've seen it a couple of times with showtime and hbo which has now stepped out but it you know it, it's it's funny how things how much changes and how much doesn't change in uh, in some sports also demonstrates sam this is the most elegant segue you're ever going to hear. Demonstrates the power of the athlete uh, in this particular media era. Does it not? I think so. Yes, I'm glad you said that because uh, <laughs> we're now going to hear from... Uh, <laughs> we're now going to hear from uh, Callum Skinner, the British uh, Olympic champion cyclist, who was part last week of the launch of Global Athlete, which is being built as an athlete-led movement for change, being led by ex-WADA Deputy Director General Rob Kohler, Mike Long, who you and I both know as the Sports Pro magazine editor, spoke to Rob Kohler um, when the 
organization was launched last week. So we're at this point, we're not really sure quite what this platform is gonna be, but we'll, hopefully we'll have a bit more of a sense of it over the next few months. The idea being that it kind of exists outside of, of current governance structures and gives athletes a, a voice on welfare matters, on commercial matters, uh, and on anti-doping, um, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, as I said last week, I met with Callum Skinner in London, um, and we had a good old chat about what brought him into the organisation and into the movement, his take on athletes' place in sports governance, and what to expect from Global Athlete in the next few months. Yeah. What do you see Global Athlete as being? I guess I see Global Athlete as, as filling a void in the Olympic and Paralympic sport landscape. Um, I think there's a real disconnect between sports governance and uh, the athletes you know, who are on the pitch or the track or, or the pool every single day. I think quite often athletes uh, you know, know the sport better than anyone else. And coincidentally, and the good news for everyone else is that I think athletes know that uh, they want the best for the sport ultimately. And I think, I think this is going to be a really positive story and a really good news story moving forward. Um, I, I, I kind of struggle to understand as to why athletes don't have a bigger say. Um, you know, if, if we look at the issue of anti-doping, they're the most vulnerable stakeholder. Um, most, they've got the most to lose in terms of their health, in terms of missing out on results, in terms of being cheated and manipulated. Um, so that's why I find it quite puzzling when WADA says their two, their two stakeholders are the IOC and governments. And I'm thinking, well, if you understand the term stakeholder correctly, it really should be the athletes that's who you're serving um, but this was really kind of born out of um, I don't know if you saw but the UK Anti-Doping Athlete Commission compiled a letter to WADA it was kind of labelled the no U-turn letter it's basically just saying that it's basically just saying that uh, you know we want WADA to stick to the original roadmap and if someone's committed a, a violation like Russia and the whole doping scandal did then stick to your guns and, and see it through I guess um, obviously, we, we didn't win that one, which was really disappointing. But the silver lining out of that out of that story is that we've really mobilised British athletes like they've never been mobilised before. Like on that letter, we had uh, you know British canoe, UK athletics, British cycling, um, you know quite a few different commissions as well as Catherine Granger, the head of UK, the chair of UK Sport, Chris Hoy, Lizzie Arnold, um, and and that's something that's too valuable to let slip away. You know the whole uh, Russian doping scandal has given us this, this opportunity, this silver lining. Um, so let's run with it and really look to resolve issues in sport that, that are long overdue. Mm. I mean, you've been quite outspoken you know, through the course of, mm. of uh, the Russian saga over the last few months in particular. Um, is, that, is that your primary motivation for getting involved in this or is there, is, is there something that you feel like has been no, it's, building it's, up three it's definitely three. not been my primary motivation. I think there's a few takeaways. I think I see the Russian doping scandal in a few different prisms to, to most people. I think, and I, I think we actually, most people would agree with me on this sense. I don't think it's actually as, as a divisive topic on the issues I'm going to talk about. So the first thing that's really disappointed was the, was the way that my voice, Becky Scott's voice, Ali Jawad's voice, Seri Samuelson's voice was, was treated. It was treated with utter contempt and disdain. And instead of collaborating, uh, collaborating with us, engaging with us in dialogue, it was really quite gladiatorial with 
the powers that be at WADA. And I think that's extremely disappointing. Um, you know, they should have taken a, a conciliatory tone because ultimately they're the ones that are compromising. Um, and they should have looked to have a collaborative approach with the athletes. And I, I'm still scratching my head now to think why, why, they, why they went down that road. Mm. Like, why not bring us on side, bring us on board, try and have a dialogue. But instead, all you really got was like a patronising pat on the head and told to get back on your bike and back to the track. And that's really disappointing, and especially when you hold my opinion about athletes being the main stakeholder in WADA. Um, so it just it created this really kind of depressing atmosphere where the athlete's voice was being suppressed to such an extent and what we hope to do with Global Athlete is whether you're for Lusada being reinstated or against it, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't care, I want your view to be heard and I want that voice to be respected um, and that's what Global Athlete's going to be, it's going to be a safe platform for athletes to be able to speak their minds and say what they think is best for sport, whether that's about commercial opportunities, welfare, anti-doping, you know, whatever. We want to create that platform, create that space in an open, transparent manner um, so that athletes can, can give something back to the sport and, and really have a say in how it's done. Mm. Do you feel like that attitude towards athletes among you know, sports administrators, do you think that that's a structural thing, that the, the right kind of framework isn't in place for athletes to have a voice, or do you think it's a cultural thing? I think it's a mixture of both. So, uh, you know, they, they did say, obviously, that the, that the IOC and governments are the two major stakeholders in WADA, and in a way, structurally, I can't argue with them, because the athletes have zero influence. Um, and that's the athlete committee, which uh, you know the chair of Becky Scott sits on the executive committee, has no real power. They're just advisors, and they're kind of invited to speak sometimes. And depending on what they say, they're allowed to finish, and sometimes they're not. Um, so you know, in real terms, we actually have no power in a structural sense. But there is also a culture of that that politics doesn't belong in sport. And also, I find that really hypocritical, especially in the IOC IOC's club. They're quite happy to accept politics when it's about North and South Korea unifying under one flag, which, don't get me wrong, I think is an amazing achievement and, and really illustrates the power of the sport. But when it co comes to something like you know, increasing athletes' commercial opportunities, talking about welfare, talking about anti-doping, the door is firmly shut. Um, and you're told to back off and, and stick to what you know, which they think is just, is just being an athlete. Um, but athletes are smarter than that. We've got more strings to our bow than just being performance machines, performers for the crowd. We've, we've got a stake in this and we want to say. Mm. I mean, sports politics is full of former athletes as well. To an extent, but I do, I do think it... I, I've, I think there needs to be a more youthful element to it. And what's more, I think there's definitely a place, so for instance, in the structure, Becky Scott should have a say at that table and, and a vote at that table. She shouldn't just be an advisor. Um, so yes, I, I concede that there are some older athletes who are, are part of the table. But if you completely ignore your athletes commission, then what does that say about you? Yeah. But I mean, is that part of the problem that there's almost, you know, the same in any political sphere, there's a game you've got to play to get along and, and maybe that's what we're trying to stop. I mean, we're not about gamesmanship. We're here taking in uh, opinions from all over. Like, I know the IOC Athlete Committee have come out with uh, a not-so-flattering statement uh, quite recently, but our, our door is still open. We still want them to come in and speak to us and voice their concerns, wherever that may be, and bring them on site. We're here to enhance the work we do. We're not there to detract. Mm. Obviously, this vehicle's come along and you've, um, you know, you, you're uh, going to be an enthusiastic part of it, but... Had you sensed that you had conversations with some of your colleagues 
about the need for something like this before. Is I really this... think that like history is actually on our side with this one. I think I think if you look at a lot of other sports, there are independent avenues for athletes to to kind of have some influence over the sport that they're in. Um, and I think a lot of sports are better because of that. So whether we're successful in our venture or not, I think in the next 10, 20 years, it's inevitable that an organisation like Global Athlete is going to come along, is going to mobilise that voice and push for real change. Mm. And what about um, the timeline in terms of how this organisation's come together, how uh, Rob and yourself and, and others have come to be involved with it over the last few months? What's, how's that process unfolded? Well, I guess we're still holding a few cards close to our chest in terms of the athletes that are involved and we're looking to announce that in the next few days. Um, and we, we do have a, a nice geographic spread and a nice mix um, of athletes in there as well. Um, but as I said, it's, it's, been, it's been really fast. Ben and I and, and, Rob and the rest of the startup team have been working really hard to get this project off the ground. And as I said, you know, some people have criticised us for, for not coming to the beforehand, but that's, that's why we're different, that's why we're new. We're building from the ground up, we're seeking consensus, and there's, there's not going to be any backroom discussions. We're, out, we're open, we're transparent. Mm. You took some time out from cycling yeah. towards the end of last year. Yeah. Are the two things linked? Or is this, did you feel like something was amiss, that this was where your energies were better directed at this no, point in your career? Or? Not necessarily, and, and to be quite honest, I'm, I'm probably quite new to the whole sports governance uh, field, I guess. Um, and, and to be quite honest, this is why I'm quite impassioned about trying to help athletes find their voice, because when I went to the Rio 2016 Olympic Games, I was fully focused on getting that medal, and, and to be honest, the, the IOC could have chucked pretty much anything at us, and it wouldn't have made the slightest bit of difference because the athlete mentality and athlete psychology is just basically deal with what you're given in the best way possible because that's your advantage over the competition because the result's not going to change. Um, and it's basically just an acceptance and, and it's a given, so you end up with quite a submissive athlete community, which is a great shame because they've got plenty to offer. And that's what Global Athletes is hopefully going to try and eke out of them, is like, well, what do you think about the sport? What do you think needs to be improved? And, uh, and give them a, a real safe space to do that. Um, you know, because as I said, I'm one of these athletes that has spoken out against the system and, and it's not been pleasant. And it's not been pleasant for Becky Scott either, or Sebi Samuelson, or anyone else. Um, because these guys in a position of power for, for one reason or another, I can't understand, do not want to engage in any kind of constructive dialogue. Mm. Um, but for us, it's a clean slate, the door's open, they're more than welcome to, to come and join us now and, and let's move forward for the betterment of sport. But uh, on the break front as well, yeah, so um, it's not unusual in British cycling for athletes to take a break, I guess. So yeah. Jason Kenny took a year out, Vicky P took a year out, and uh, you know, fundamentally we've got a, a centralised system in Manchester, and if you're looking for something to freshen up a little bit or to, to change something, you can't change teams as if you're a professional sports person. Mm. You can't change your setup as if as if we had a regional setup in, in the UK. So part of what I'm doing is getting out there, um, you know, embedding myself in different squads. I was in the Scottish rugby team for a Monday Tuesday last week, just to try and get some fresh ideas and see how people do things differently and see mm. what I can bring back to that Manchester atmosphere to make it new and interesting and exciting. Mm. With all of that in mind, what, what you just said, obviously, you're still you still have one eye on yeah. how your training's going to map out going into Tokyo yeah but given how much focus mm. has to go into an athlete's career particularly one in an Olympic athlete's career where there's a lot of sacrifices and in lots of cases not much coming back in the way of kind of um, you know commercial security yeah do you anticipate there being quite a lot for whom you know getting involved with something in a um, uh, getting involved with activism is, is going to mm. be something that they 
intellectually they like the idea of, but kind of yeah. emotionally they can't commit to because of, of everything else. I think here's the thing: we're, we're not we're not leading a revolution. We're looking to enhance the structures that are already there, um, and and also see what we can bring to the table in a constructive manner. Um, so what what we're trying to say to athletes is, you know, you don't you don't need to do the media runs like I've been doing today. Mm. Um, you, you don't you don't need to take a, an independent stance. In essence, what we want you to do is is kind of come to us, tell us your opinions. We'll find consensus and then, you know, lend us lend us your name in, in pushing that forward. Um, and if if you if you're not happy with anything that we come out with, then you're quite free to back out as well. Mm. Um, but I don't think that would be the case. We want to do it in a genuine kind of productive manner and I hope they'll get behind that um, but yeah you're right it's, it does take a lot of energy and a lot of dedication to, to, to you know to keep these issues at the forefront of your mind and a lot of athletes will not have that capacity to do that Yeah. Um, but that's but maybe that's because when they do speak out they're not triggered that well mm. um, so that's what I mean about Global Athlete being a safe space a good forum for everyone to share their views and hopefully it shouldn't be so stressful in the future mm. what's the process going to be by which you're reaching out to athletes. I mean, you talked about getting a, a broad geographical spread. Obviously, you're going to have personal networks that you're going to lean on. Mm. What else will you be working through to kind of get more people from more backgrounds on, on board with this? Well, so since we launched Global Athlete, we've had messages coming in from like all corners, whether it's you know, through my own contacts on iMessage, WhatsApp, or from Facebook to Instagram to, to Twitter emails, all that kind of stuff, um, and that's really great to see, um, but it probably shows how, you know, what sports governance could learn in terms of communicating with athletes, is that it comes in a multitude of forms, um, but we're, we're trying to collate that towards uh, an email list, and then we're looking to build from there, and we really want to make this a genuine movement, and have, and spend as much face time as we possibly can with, with these athletes, because um, it's not going to be easy to, to get them to engage, because as I said, the landscape at the moment is so, is so, uh, Kind of gladiatorial almost. Mm. It's, you're encouraged not to speak out unless it unless it aligns with one of the IOCs or WADA's aims. Um, so we that that I, we'll maybe looking at having a, a conference down the line as well. But we're, to be honest, we're at really early stages in terms of this movement. Mm. And obviously, I mean, if you're talking about athlete welfare across the world, there's, yeah. there's going to be a disparate group of aims that you've got to reconcile. Exactly. Yeah. You know, for for athletes in this country, it might be funding structures. Mm -hmm. Other countries, it might be um, you know, athlete welfare. We've obviously seen what's happened in uh, in the states with USA gymnastics. Um, what's happened in Afghanistan? What's happened in lots of places where uh, you know, I think, what, I think what kind of what kind of structure does it need to take in order to be able to take on all of those concerns? I think in there, ultimately, the answer to that is good governance. I think that, especially in the US case, there was plenty of warning signs um, before it all went wrong. Um, and in cases like that, ultimately, I think you can point the finger at weak governance and weak leadership. They're not they're not confident enough to take on those topics, um, and that maybe that's due to a lack of an athlete voice. Because it's as I said with the doping issue, it's us that have got the most to lose. We're the most vulnerable group within this sporting setup. Um, so why don't we have a voice? Why don't we, you know, put the onus on, on people who are in governance to, to take this issue seriously um, and and what from whatever nation they're from? I think the unifying factor there. Is Enjoying this Sports Pro podcast? Well, we're also the sports industry leader in print, digital, and events. Head to sportspromedia.com for the latest features, news, and interviews from the business of sport. Help yourself to a subscription to our acclaimed magazine and find out about our unmissable conferences before anyone else. Get inside the industry with Sports Pro. Are there any other organizations that you've looked to? 
for inspiration or for, for any kind of guidance. They don't have to be in sport, but um, you know, any kind of pressure groups or activist groups that uh, that give you some sense of what something like this can become. Well, I guess uh, the comparison that a lot of people make is um, with professional sport in the US, and, and you can be in no doubt, uh, no doubt as to who's who's got the, the, the power of influence in a lot of those sports. Um, you know, whether it's revenues or anything else, the, the athlete movement is very strong over there. Um, now, we're, we're a long, long way from that, and I'm not even saying that's an aspiration, um, but I, I, what we're actually trying to do is try to get, uh, not, not affiliate groups, but get people uh, on board with us as a cause. We're not, we're not looking to step on anyone's toes or silence any other group. We're looking to collaborate and build a future together because the IOC Athlete Commission has, it, has its merits, it has its goals, um, but what we're saying is we can offer something a little bit different to that. Mm. Like we're going to be representing athletes um, that haven't gone to the games but are involved in Olympic sports. That's a key example. Um, you know, we're going to have that full independence. So, you know, we'll have no qualms in, in, in going against the IOC line. Whereas for um, the IOC Athlete Commission, that's a big step. Um, understandably so. I completely empathise. Um, so that that's that's where we're different, I think. Um, and but as I said, I think history's on our side with this one. I think if it's not us, it will be someone at some point. I mean, you you've alluded to it a little bit earlier, but there there has been some opposition from within the IOC Athletes Commission mm-hmm. to this. I mean, you know, were you expecting that kind of reaction? To be honest, no. I I kind of maybe slightly optimistically hoped for. I mean, at worst, you know, silent non-engagement, I guess, and and at best, you know, private engagement. Um, you know, I, I understand the stresses that a lot of those guys are under. It's it's uh, it's not a system that I'd feel totally comfortable operating in myself. Um, and and I think I think that's pretty clear. And, and not to single out the IOC Commission. You know, I'm on the the British Olympic Association Athlete Commission, and you know, we have a certain mandate, and we're not really to stray too far away from the objectives of the British mm-hmm. Olympic Association. I understand that. Or if you look at the British Athletes Commission, they're funded by UK Sport, and quite often they're they're the ones that they're contesting results or decisions with a lot of the time. Um, that's just the reality of where the funding comes from for a lot of these bodies. So I I don't judge them for it. Um, but I would say that like our door is completely open. I think their statement that they brought out maybe maybe jumped the gun a little bit. Um, maybe didn't fully understand what we brought to the table. It made it made to me it was a little bit confusing. Um, so I, I'm actually in dialogue with quite a few of them um, at the moment to try and bring them down and to show us like our initial press release without any spin, mm-hmm. um, just the whole cold hard facts of what we're about and that we're really no threat. We're genuinely here to enhance what they do, give them a stronger voice and make sport better for the athletes, which is what they're in it for as well. Yeah, do you think a big part of this is going to be education because people have an idea of what kind of athlete organisations exist at the moment. You've got commissions that are attached, as you say, to... I mean, to be honest, I'd contest that. I think, you know, until I got more involved in this movement, I didn't know anything about the IOC Athlete Mm. Commission. If you look at their their following on Twitter, it's it's actually quite small compared to the number of athletes that are involved or should be represented by that body. And again, that's that's something new we're trying to do with our approach. We're trying to engage the disenfranchised, we're trying to engage the people that haven't been engaged before. Um, You know, whether that's through kind of uh, it, it being for athlete, uh, being you know for athletes by athletes, or you know being a little bit more youthful in our branding and our approach and our communication methods. That's that's what we're bringing to the table. We're bringing something new and innovative. Um, and again, you know, if, it, if if we stumble upon an issue which is going to be better for the for the, 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 the IOC AC target, then we'll work together on that. 
completely mm. happy on that front. Um, so yeah, that's what I've said time and time again, we're there to enhance, we're not there to detract. Mm. But I mean, in, in terms of you creating something that's a bit of a movement rather than mm. a union, you know, mm. is, is that something that there's going to be a little bit of progress towards people getting a, a firmer idea of what it is? Yeah, yeah. Um, but as I said, we're, we're, we're still kind of in the early stages. So I guess where we are sitting at the moment is a movement. And, and if maybe in you know five years or whatever, it, it morphs into something else such as a union, then um, that could be a productive step. We just really have to see, uh, you know, start start from scratch, get out there, speak to athlete bodies, speak to athletes themselves, and, and get a grip of, of what are the issues that are important to them. Like, you know, I have my fair share of, of what I think we should be bringing into sport, but let's see what they've got and then mm. build consensus and see what the best way is to achieve that goal. Mm. What are the issues that are important to you? I mean, with leading aside, obviously, Rosada yeah. completely, what, what, what are some of the things that you feel uh, there's not enough discussion about, not just within sports politics, but within sports media, the, the kind of top level sports culture? I think it's the, uh, one of the most important things to me, and I think I'm going to be talking a lot more about this in the next coming months, is the issue of athlete welfare. And I think that's something that actually, I know you don't want to talk about anti-doping, but it does stray into anti-doping, and that's what I actually found as one of the most important issues. Um, you know, I, I can take, you know, when it comes to people's health, for me, that comes before fair sport. Um, and what we had detailed in the McClellan report was instances where you had visually impaired athletes allegedly um, being fed performance-enhancing substances by their coach. And if you consider that, that's just that's outrageous on so many levels and so unethical and really threatening to these athletes' welfare, health and everything else. And for me, that's more important. It's not about, you know, it, if, if we were to resolve that issue, that would be a great step forward for me. Because I think too often, you know, quite often you'll hear a general public argument saying, oh, why don't we have a doped up Olympics? And I, I literally just turn white with a sheet whenever they suggest that. Because as a cycling fan, I can remember the days when people were collapsing on the side of the road. Um, and dying, and and that's that's the flip side of it. Athletes aren't just, you know, um, you know, we're we're quite good at putting athletes up on a pedestal and and all this kind of hero worship kind of thing and how much they can go through and how much they can take, you know, punch after punch, and still succeed. But they're still human underneath all that. And I think that's important to the member, um, and they have plenty of uh, you know thoughts and feelings and ideas and how to better innovate and better improve the sport. Do you think people appreciate, you know, when an athlete steps forward, uses their voice? I mean, the, the example that people have used in the last year, and I know that Mike used it in his his conversation with with Rob yesterday, his mm. Colin Kaepernick. But there are plenty of other examples of, of athletes who've taken a step forward at some risk to their own reputation, some risk to their yeah. own. I think. Um, the... Do you think people appreciate that enough? What what kind of a step that is? I mean, I, like, I really commend Colin Kaepernick for the work he's done, and I think he's shed a light on a really serious issue, to, obviously to the detriment of his, of his playing career. I think he's probably got a long career ahead of him in terms of activism, um, and, and maybe some new commercial opportunities, as I know the Nike, the Nike campaign went especially well. Um, but, you know, I, I'd say if, it, if an athlete is to speak out, it, it really needs to be, uh, they need to have validity in doing that, and they need to have a, um, so I'll give you an example, I, I've done a lot of work on, on LGBT rights, but that relates quite well to, to my family situation where, you know, my dad came out when, he, when I was six, um, so I have that kind of modern family kind of thing. Uh, but uh, and another issue that I've talked about has obviously been anti-doping, but I kind of felt, 
you know, I was brought into that world as a result of my TUEs being hacked through fancy days. Um, so I think it's it's really important for athletes to speak out on issues they've got credibility on. Um, if anyone follows Andy Good on, on Twitter, he's an ex-rugby player. He quite often gets himself entangled in all kinds of right-wing arguments. And that's where you're just going to get lost in the noise. If you're going to have a voice, it needs to be needs to be credible and, and come from a, a genuine place. And that's what Colin Kaepernick's done extremely well. Mm. Do you feel like you were in a position, you know, we'll pick, pick up on the LGBT thing because it's time because of the, uh, sorry, it's timely to my question. Um, do you think you're in a position to amplify some of the conversations that people are having elsewhere in sport? I'm thinking of um, the incident with Joe Root and, and Shannon Gabriel earlier this week. Um, you know, you will, we'll, if, if something like that comes up, it could be around that, it could be around athlete welfare, it could be around the uh, mistreatment of athletes in, in other ways, commercial ways or, or whatever it might be. Yeah. Do you feel like you're in a position where you can take something like that and move the conversation into other... I hope so. I think I think that, that can be the power of sport, but we have to be really careful that we're not imposing a, a kind of Western ideal um, on other nations. And I think that's where we start to lose credibility. As, as amazing as it was for, for Joe Root to call that out, ultimately he was, he was playing in a country where being a homosexual is still illegal. Um, and I think that's something that people forget that yeah, you know, the, the, it, it's a really tricky atmosphere to try and navigate. Um, and I, 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 to be honest, I think there's lower hanging fruit than, than that at the moment. As much as personally, I'd, I'd love to see you know the world be a, a much safer place um, and a much more accepting place for you know skin color, uh, whether you're LGBT or whatever your religion, whatever your background is. That unfortunately, that's not the reality we deal with. But there's plenty of low-hanging issues out there that we can target, and uh, and that's going to start the ball rolling. And then hopefully we'll get to the to the issues that you know I obviously have a big passion about, which is LGBT rights. This has been, you know, we're seeing a lot more opportunities for athletes to use platforms that are designed for them, mm. um, whether that's media platforms or their own kind of social channels or whatever. Yeah. Um, how how do you anticipate being able to leverage that? In well, that falls really well into a commercial argument because, say for instance, if an athlete has a vlog and relies on that, that income from hits on YouTube and stuff, they're not allowed to film inside the Olympic Village, they're not allowed to film inside the competition venues. So that's where we think we can really bring that youth element to, to IOC and Olympic decision making about you know, let, let, let's look at where athletes are earning the money these days and, and let's try and soften the stance because ultimately I think an athlete vlogging from inside the Olympic Games is for the betterment of the whole movement. Mm. Um, it's giving people a unique insight. Um, it might not be as sanitised as the IOC may like, but it gives a real behind-the-scenes kind of feel to it. Um, but no, we're, I, again, I'm still conscious that we need to improve our communications as to, you know, do we branch a bit more outside of the test? Do we go into podcasts? Do we go into YouTube? Uh, do we go into Snapchat? All these kind of things. There's a lot of new media, and it's, it's going to be quite presumptuous of us to, to think that athletes pick up a newspaper every day because, mm. because they don't. We're dealing in a new age here. Um, so, yeah, I think that's something that, that we're bringing the table working in, in collaboration is, is going to be how do we really get to athletes and how do we really get our message across. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, the organisation is funded by Fair Sport, um, you know, which is, is backed by uh, some financiers and, and, and other people in, in the business space. I mean, how well do you know them and, and how well do you understand their motivations and, and what they're willing to do to help you scale this up? 
So I guess that's the, the first thing is that there, that there is an initial funding source. What we're ultimately looking to get towards is where we prove we're worth enough that the athletes are happy to kind of chip in themselves. But that's obviously going to be a long-term picture and we need to build so much credibility, we need to win so much trust and we, you know, it's going to be a long road until, we, until I feel we're comfortable to get to that point. Um, from my point of view, I wouldn't be in this organisation, uh, you know, giving my time as a, as a volunteer unless I truly believed it was independent and that we had full control to, to, to go where it leads us, basically. Um, and I've got that reassurance from Rob and the guys at Fair Sport that, you know, this isn't this isn't tied aid, if you like. It's um, it, it, we're pretty much free to operate as we please and. The only kind of goal of the organisation is just to embrace that athlete voice and ask. And for you, you know, you're looking at, at getting back on the track fairly soon. Um, Tokyo about what, 18 months away now. Could be, yeah. <laughs> Who's counting? How? Um, <laughs> sorry, I hope that's not. No, sorry, yeah. Yeah. Um, how how are you going to balance? those two interests now. Yeah, well I think in that um, athlete startup element of Global Athlete, I see how many other athletes do we have? Eight. Well, eight in total work, including Rob, so um, it's uh, artistic license there with the word athlete. <laughs> <laughs> seven athletes, I guess. Seven athletes, yeah. so that's a great way of, at the moment we've launched with two at the moment so far. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so we're six athletes and, and me and Rob. So yeah. So that's Lots how we're kind of going to slowly build up sharing that workload. Uh, it, it was agreed that they thought that I had the the best platform, the best voice to give this the initial kick. And it's not to say that I'm going to step back now. Um, but I'm really going to be supporting, uh, you know, what they're going to bring to the table and what they're going to share with the media and what they're going to bring to Global Athlete. And I think that's how it's going to end up being a bit more of a, a manageable workload than than the last two days. Mm. And do you have any ambitions for what this will look like? Let's let's take Tokyo as a nice yeah. nice target for what this is going to look like by the time we get to what I'd love Summer Olympic Games. I mean, at minimum, what I'd love to see, and I think, like as you said, Tokyo is not too far away, um, and sports governance is notoriously slow to implement change. Um, but I think what we can do in the in the very short term and really push is to change that culture and to change that kind of feeling that the athletes are. Are, are causing trouble, or that the athletes are voicing an opinion that, that, that shouldn't be embraced. I think, I don't think that's good for anyone. I don't think it's good for the athletes, I don't think it's good for the sport, and ultimately I don't think it's good governance. Um, so if, if we can change that culture towards Tokyo, we're going to be in a better place already. Okay, that's it for another Sports Pro podcast. Thank you to Callum Skinner. Thanks to you, Sam Carp. Thank you very much. Hope to have you on again very soon. Thanks to everyone for listening. Please do remember to subscribe, to like, share, review, and we'll be back with you next week. Bye-bye.